Welcome to Darker Days Radio. I'm Mike, and this is Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hey, I'm pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah everything's great. <laughs> well, that was a really low energy response. <laughs> I'm bit. Uh, it's just been hectic. I, I think I'm distracted because I'm still got. Oh God, how many? How much stuff left to paint? Lots of stuff to paint, and trying to read lots of books. So uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, so I just... I, I, <laughs> I've been doing. I am happy. Don't worry. I just, just my brain is all over the place with things. Hey, I think I'm finally gonna start painting again because uh, there's a new season of Mad Men on Netflix, and that's what I was watching as I painted uh, War Machine stuff this past fall. So ah. I'll probably be uh, getting back into that. But we also have a uh, very special guest with us, and who's that, Chris? Uh, we have Matt, who is a uh, who's appeared before with us on our uh, Cthulhu Tech one-shot. Indeed, indeed. How's it going, Matt? Um, it's going fine. I just got booted off the call. Um, okay. Well, you're here now. Yes, I am. Yep. Awesome. That <laughs> stuff can happen with Skype, but uh, no, it's very good to have you on the show, and you are a bit of a werewolf expert. So that's why we've... Uh, uh, grabbed you for this episode because we're going to be going over the new Werewolf 20th Anniversary Edition core rulebook, mm-hmm. among other things. So, uh, without further ado, I think it's time to hop on over to White Wolf News. So, uh, of course, White Wolf doesn't really make books anymore, but what they did recently release, or at least CCP, was Dust mm-hmm. 514, uh, which is the uh, first-person shooter kind of sister game for EVE Online. So, uh, it's cool to see that out. Uh, some people are playing it, seem to like it, and hopefully that's going to free up resources now for the World of Darkness MMO. Is that that's on um, PS3? PS3 only. Yeah, and it's not something you f- you can just physically pick up a copy of in a shop. It's yeah, it's digital. A, it's, a, it's digital. So, so more than likely, what with the whole console thing going on right now, I guess it'll mostly be ported over to PS4. I would, I would guess. I would assume but, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, new considering consoles. It's, <laughs> it is purely digital. I mean, I'm pretty sure they've already been working on a port if they already want if they want to port it. Yeah. But I have heard that it's pretty neat just because of the fact of the way that it integrates with Eve Online. Like, if you're on the ground in Dust Five One Four, you can communicate with people in Eve Online and have them bombard the planet that you're on. Mm-hmm. It is kind of interesting. I'm not too sure how that works, like with with the real time element, because there, I don't know how whether there's a one-to-one with real-time in dust and 
real time what is meant to be real time in eve so well i've heard that it is one to one real time across both of them the mm -hmm. only the only thing i'm concerned about is i know that in eve online if they, you get a gigantic pile of ships in one system time starts to dilate so people can react to things that are happening yeah and i'm not sure how that would translate into dust 514 yeah that's kind of what i was thinking about okay well that's still quite interesting and yes it should mean you know what mmo moves on as we get snippets of news turning up from that so shall we move on to what we actually know from onyx path yes definitely um of course werewolf 20th is out and we're gonna be talking about mm -hmm. it tonight uh, additionally, uh, they recently released the Mage Translation Guide, which is fueling flame wars across the internet. I've not actually had a look at the translation guide. Have you had a look at it? Nope, nope. I'm uh, pretty pretty swamped with uh, yeah. reviews right now, so not, to not be, grabbing to, anything else. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with the translation guide, I mean, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a distraction for me because I think I'm quite happy with how Mage the Awakening is as it is, and... Never really had a problem with Mage the Ascension, so yeah. But mm. what kind of um, what kind of flame wars have you seen? Or, or actually, I haven't seen any. I'm just assuming. We're just assuming. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, always one of the things that you've I've, I think I've generally heard with regard to Mage the Awakening was that it, for system wise, would be you know people always said they would you know make conversions or have done conversions so i guess having something that does the hard work for you um is obviously a good thing um yeah it's something i need to kind of look at picking up at some point but too many other books to look at um speaking of other books then so exalted third edition it hit how much six hundred eighty four thousand dollars well over that but and so it's the number one RPG project on Kickstarter. So that was completely crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a Kickstarter. I can't remember what the final like tally of freebie type stuff and stretch goals were. I think there were maps and you know different versions of Gillette's covers. And obviously there's been funding towards uh, future books. For it but you know it's good to see exalted coming back and you know obviously hoping it will address the issues with that game uh in due course you know oh, yeah. as the writers tackle those issues so um yeah um well i'm looking forward to it and i just hope the uh, system is not exalted second edition because that was a headache to run combat no way chris exalted is back with a vengeance hmm and Chris, I just counted. They hit twenty-seven stretch goals. Twenty-seven. Wow, that's pretty pretty damn good. I mean, some of the stretch goals were were even not extras for, in any sense. They were more kind of like pay rise bumps for the writers, which I think you know, is an is an interesting form of stretch goal, and I think is kind of fair because I think some of the things that I've read here and there about Kickstarter is that maybe there's now become a bit too much of a case of people um you know backers feeling uh, uh they feel like they should be each kicks each uh stretch goal should be something for the backers 
which I don't think is uh, it's this whole entitlement element of like you know fans and collectors, isn't it? So. Mm-hmm. Yep, I concur. And some other stuff that's been going on, a little more development for V20. Eddie Webb has been uh, putting out complete chapters for Rites of Blood, and uh, he's been getting quite a bit of feedback. Uh, and I, in fact, think I might be using some of the rituals featured in that book uh, this summer in a chronicle. Okay. I haven't actually had a look at the stuff for that. Um, and I think what's the most interesting stuff kind of popping out of those chapters then? Um, it's only rituals. I don't remember seeing any thaumaturgical paths at all. And, uh, there's, I mean, chapters for Anarchs, Camarilla Sabat, and also the, uh, Talmahera and the Inkanu, which is pretty cool to see. Let's see, let's see, what else? Oh, there's even a write-up for the Hexaped, which is a kind of freaky human centipede-like creature, which appeared in, uh, previous, uh, <laughs> books that, uh, the, the Tremere kind of make them. Weird stuff. As the Tremere do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they want to be everything, and I guess they uh, wanted to show up the Zemitsi with a little flesh crafting of their own. Well, didn't they make the gargoyles? They did, yes. Yes, they did. And what else we've been getting on the blogs? Obviously, Matt McFarland is writing up his actual play reports for Demon the whatever the hell it is. Um and he's also blogged a little bit about uh, you know, what it means to play these demons and the idea of uh, the concept of covers. So, so um, to explain that um, briefly, a demon is obviously a fallen angel of the god machine. And when the god machine creates an angel to uh, act on its behalf, to um, you know, to manipulate infrastructures and set them up and harvest from these infrastructures, uh, it creates what is known as a cover. Now, these covers, obviously, like uh, the example was like a janitor. So, uh, the angel will takes on the role of a janitor, performs the task as a janitor, obviously does its angelic roles as well. So it has you know people think, oh, it's just a janitor, but when they go back to their home because obviously they have a cover, they have all the things to set up this front. The angel doesn't go to sleep, they don't eat, because it's all just uh, it's all just very much surface kind of things. But when they leave the god machine, um, and so they're a demon, they now actually have to sleep, they have to eat. And there's certain like advantages to this, so maybe um, they would have been taking a paycheck all the time they've been operating under this cover, and suddenly they've now got all this money saved up, which they've never spent. Um, and then there was a further thing about how it was possible that a demon could lose its cover and take on a new one, which basically is kind of an element of soul-stealing to it hmm. and and deleting people from reality. So... It's definitely a strange beast, uh, and I'm quite looking forward to seeing a demon, uh, more of demon, and uh, eventually when it hits. So, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Definitely pretty neat and unique. Mm -hmm. The other thing that uh, came out recently is uh, Reap the Whirlwind, which is the free RPG Day product. Uh, I was, in fact, at the game store yesterday and picked up a copy and then got roped into a uh, vampire game playing the... uh, into the Void SAS Adventure. So it was pretty sweet. Um, things things kind of went our way eventually. And um, killed the prince, killed the sheriff, 
one guy in the party became uh came the prince i became the sheriff so uh victory for the carthians bitches <laughs> um the what kind of bits of the rules were kind of uh you know shown off then because obviously this is kind of a prelude to what we'll see in blood and smoke right um we covered uh we did conditions so uh i for example had the inspired condition with my crowbar which uh okay. became it was actually really important later on uh for uh getting some secret documents uh additionally um the new masquerade and requiem system was used so masquerade is your sort of mortal identity mm-hmm. and your requiem is like your your true vampiric identity as well and that replaces virtue and vice uh for how you regain willpower okay yeah because the idea of a masquerade and a requiem first turned up in dance macabre so uh in that it was more of a they they ranked it one to five as sort of a, uh, a merit but to see it being used as a virtue and vice is kind of interesting because obviously it's the whole idea that you know it's the same way with what we've read about vampire having a different approach to what humanity is as well so obviously as a vampire you have slightly different morals or different ways of viewing the world so yeah the idea that you you're working towards keeping to your your masquerade or keeping to your requiem as a way of getting back willpower does that mean then am i right in thinking that you get back all your willpower points back uh, if you act in a way that is towards your masquerade. Yeah, if you go like balls to the wall to keep your identity and keep the, yeah. the masquerade going, yes, you regain all your willpower. But likewise, okay. if you go balls to the wall and uh, really em- embrace your vampiric nature, uh, you know, screw the masquerade and all that, you can also regain all your willpower. So both of the extremes will work. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of neat. The um, it, again, it reinforces that the whole point is that this is a modified way of doing morality because it's about this dealing with you know stress and trauma rather than this kind of the old Victorian sense of morality. Okay, cool. Looking forward to seeing that. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely good stuff. And uh, I guess the last bit of news from uh, Onyx Path is uh, we're just going to mention that David Hill is going to be working on uh, Dark Ages, or is currently working on Dark Ages, Darkening Skies, a new book for the Dark Ages line of uh, Classic World of Darkness. So that's going to be really cool to see. And that, I think, does that cover all Dark Ages game lines? Yes. Yeah, it has a bit of information on uh, Inquisitors, Fae, Mages, Werewolves, and Vampires. Yeah, that's kind of neat. That's good to see more Dark Ages stuff turning up. So, uh, Chris, what kind of uh, Darker Days news do we have? Oh, what have we got? Um, so, myself and Peter, we did the Fading Suns Darkling, where we kind of went over the entire setting. And um, I think we'll be looking at maybe doing another one of those in the future, uh, where we maybe start going through in detail more of each of the factions, maybe. Um what else? And I've been doing uh, videos. I've been getting used to video editing and getting mm-hmm. better and better at it. So there's, um, well, well, let's say we. I did the video review of the uh, buildings of Malifaux set. I'm still waiting for two more of the uh, Terraclip sets to turn up. So there'll be another video for those. Uh, and also the kind of product overview review of Iron Kingdoms. So that's kind of like 
what content is already published that you can get hold of since Iron Kingdoms was released. And then a unboxing of the War Machine two-player starter set, um, which was, you know, again, is a really great set that I've been painting up. So there's lots of pictures up on the community, and I guess I should put something up somewhere with on the Dark Days website with some of that. And yeah, just hope to get some uh, more stuff soon. Um, and obviously we've had the, uh, those videos uh, kindly... Uh, Kindly shared by Private Press on their Facebook, so they got a massive amount of hits. So obviously there are some fans out there, and I think there are some fans of Iron Kingdoms out there, which leads me to think that we need to do some more Darklings on that setting. Yeah, I finally got the core book, so we'll see Yay. what happens. Excellent. Yeah. I've right liked on. what I've read so far about Iron Kingdoms. Yeah, it's definitely pretty interesting. It mm -hmm. very much takes a lot of the Tolkien-esque fantasy uh, elements and kind of gives them a new spin. Like the fact that elves aren't the oldest race in the setting kind of makes me happy. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And the miniatures are great. And really working the roleplay. What else we got coming up uh, or done? Uh, we were on uh, the Wadcast. Yes, I showed up on uh, episode four and uh, completely raged because I found out that... Uh... <laughs> There's going to be no Mac version, at least not at release, and I have a, I have a MacBook Pro, so mm -hmm. I'm pretty sad. I said, I said some things, which I, I maybe shouldn't have. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris McDonough. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that's, oh, that's always, it's always a tough thing with that, isn't it? Um, but hopefully I should be on the next one episode five and i'll be getting i'm hoping that james will be able to appear with me so uh because james has obviously got some proper background actual legitimate background in like mmo design and, and stuff and works for companies that have done that type of thing so he will be there with me um with the other hosts and guests on that show so i don't know what we're going to be talking about next show just mostly what other little tidbits turned up. Oh, I think there was one thing that turned up that was interesting. Um, that was on the WOD News website. Someone, obviously, that you look for people CVs that have worked for said companies because it can give you insight into games that haven't been released yet. Mm -hmm. So this one CV had some talk about social networks linking, linking or social networks as part of a way of of integrating with the uh, political systems of. World of Darkness Online. So the whole idea maybe of a social network being embedded into the MMO is not too much of a of a leap. Right. Of a, uh, and actually makes a lot of sense. So we were kind of on the mark, I think. It would be interesting if, it, if we are in, on the mark with that when it finally gets released. Totally. And the uh, last bit of Darker Days news is uh, it's a little sad. Guys, I, I failed the Changeling the Dreaming Challenge. I, I just can't do it, guys. Just can't do it. You can't do it. What's wrong with it? <laughs> it's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's, it's, it's not Changeling. It's, it's me. It's me. Okay. And uh, I just couldn't come up with any good ideas. So instead, this summer, I'm going to be running the Tremere Chronicle on Google Hangouts. And uh, anyone is uh, free to join. I think we have three players right now. So there's definitely a fourth slot open. And I'm gonna be trying something a little interesting, uh, where the the characters are set in stone, but the the players are not. So if someone can't make it one week, 
uh, someone else can just jump in and take over their character for one session. Um, hopefully we'll make it uh, run a bit smoother and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. And I think that's it for all of our news. Let's move on over to the classic World of Darkness segment. Classic World of Darkness. So, Werewolf the Apocalypse. <laughs> Game's a bit of a shred fest, isn't it? I mean, when you're reading through the W20 Core book, you can hear, you can feel the heavy metal music that some of these writers were listening to as they were you know, <laughs> typing this up. I'm not even going to start because I wrote, I wrote my uh, review, so uh, I'm sure I've got people that want to shoot me. Um, so uh, let's, shall we just start with what is Werewolf the, the Apocalypse and what the general idea, concept, theme, mood of the game is and the scope of it? And then from there, maybe we can see how W20 like you know caters to all that again, but also you know provides a bit more. Yeah. Well, like think Werewolf, Werewolf the Apocalypse was my first role-playing game, so I'm kind of a fanboy for it, I'd guess, ever so slightly. But most of what I think Werewolf the Apocalypse is is it's a game. A, it's a game of massive scope. Not only are you fighting to save the world, you're fighting to save existence as we know it and the idea of the world as it exists. Like, you fight in the real world, you fight in the spiritual world, you fight against pollutions, both environmental and social. There's a lot of different battlefields that you can find within the world, and I, it's really fun in that way. The idea is that there is the world spirit Gaia who created the world as we know it. And then she and to facilitate this, she created the forces of creation, definition and destruction, which were the which were the wild weaver and worm. And the wild would create things, the weaver would name them, give them form, give them purpose, and the worm would destroy them when, you know, they were he was done with when they had served their purpose and but then the weaver got kind of annoyed that all of her stuff was getting broken so she bound up the worm in her webs bound all of reality in her webs split the physical and spiritual into two different things and gaia saw this happening said mm, that's probably not the best of ideas and she created the changing breeds among them werewolves and so the idea behind World of the Apocalypse is that you are trying to prevent, well, one of any number of endgame scenarios that are not so good for the real world. Mostly you're fighting the worm because the worm wants to corrupt everything and bring it down to, you know, destruction. Okay. Yeah, I think that covers it, you know, fairly com in, a, in a fairly complete way. I mean, I have to admit, like, I've never played World of the Apocalypse and... My, oh, where do I start? Like, I mean, it, my first RPG was obviously like D&D &D, and then followed that was like Star Wars. So like my first World of Darkness game was Vampire the Masquerade. And then after that, I jumped headlong into Mage the Ascension. So for me, uh, reading Wealth, uh, the Apocalypse 20th anniversary has been kind of like, um, it's been interesting because it's like, there's so much that's familiar to me because of how much, crosses over with mage the ascension and so i i understand the, the scope because the the scope is 
in many respects very similar to that of Mage of the Ascension. It's just a very big battle for reality in, mm-hmm. in some form. Um, yeah. Mike? Right. Well, one of the things, uh, actually, Chris, you and I were talking about this a little bit uh, okay. this past week is, and maybe, Matt, you can shed some insight onto this because uh, you're, you're obviously the uh, werewolf expert right here. But uh, Vampire from 1st Edition to Revised had huge changes in the scope of the game, uh, shifting from this very personal horror game to this sort of hot war between the uh, Camarillo and the Sabbat. And, and uh, Mage of the Ascension has a similar drastic change mm. from when you have the uh, more personal elements of 1st uh, Edition and also really awful rules leading up to 2nd um, Edition, with, which has you like flying through astral realms blasting technocracy spaceships going to the uh more down-to-earth revised version which focuses very strongly on how um really the traditions have almost lost the uh, ascension war has werewolf had a similar change between the editions in your opinion well take this with the caveat that i didn't get into werewolf until revised Mm-hmm. But I have tried to go back and read as much as I could of the previous editions. And from what I understand, first edition Werewolf was very big on putting together um, setting books. Like that's where we have Rage Across Australia, Rage Across the Amazon, um, and then the, the By Night books, like the New York By Night and stuff like that, which they where they took a lot of they took a lot of cues from Vampire. And then in second edition, they started exploring the Umbra more. Mm. Like, that's where we got Rage Across the Heavens and the Prophecy mm. of the Phoenix and the Perfect Metis, which are their own things. But then in Revised, I think they tried to get away from all that because sort of like for the same reasons about Mage is that, you know, the game line was focusing too much about, you know, all right, you, you know, do your, you do your stuff in the real world for your first couple of ranks, but then you go off into the Umbra and have magic special adventures and you don't really care about the real world anymore. And so I think in Revised, they really tried to get it more into a, you know, the real world is what matters because without the real world, the spiritual world is also going to die kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that, of course, brings us to Werewolf 20th Anniversary, which uh, is a huge book, 555 yes. pages on my PDF. Mm-hmm. And there's an uh, extensive comic book in the beginning, and uh, it really covers uh, pretty much everything you could want uh, for player options. A lot of information on the different tribes, even tribes that don't exist anymore, as well as uh, most, if not all, of the changing breeds. In fact, I'd say all the changing breeds are there except for like the Komazats. Well, and the other dead ones. Yeah. Yeah, they they don't have the Kazmatods or the Apis or the third guys whose name I can't remember. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it is a, it is a huge huge book and I think I think the great thing about it is obviously um because yeah, I I'm, I have to be honest because obviously like you know I came at this from the whole thing of I've never really touched a werewolf the apocalypse book i think other than the fact i've played a femori a femori game um and uh, the fact is like it's great that it is so complete but i in reading it i think that 
while I can see how it really does cater to the fans of the game, I don't know whether it's really the, the most ideal book or it's set up as the most ideal book for someone that's never really played it and, and wants to know how to get started in it. Because, like you say, the, the, the scope of the game is so big, but it can get kind of... Um, I wouldn't even really know where to begin running a game of Werewolf the Apocalypse. And I think that's my... The only thing I've, I found difficult with the book that it didn't give much guidance in that, I didn't find. Yeah, and I can see that as a problem because, mm. I mean, there were a, there's a lot of books in the World of the Apocalypse line, like the, story, the various storyteller guides and the various um, tribe books and the player's guides even that yeah. go into more about, you know, the setting of the world and how those things are. I think what they tried to do with World of the Apocalypse is just make a definitive edition for everything they could. And the vast majority of what they had were rules. And I'm not sure if I'd, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd put it as a failing for the book because odds are, if you're wanting to play a, a Werewolf the Apocalypse game, you're probably not. You probably know about it beforehand, and that's why you're picking up the 20th anniversary edition. Yeah, exactly. You, you wouldn't pick up the 20th anniversary edition as your first as your first book in most cases. Yeah, I mean that's that's why I found the. Um, I mean, I think it's great that they have all the. Uh, I mean, it's great you've got maybe all the changing breeds there for people that already play the game. But I found them kind of a bit of a it felt a bit of a distraction because I was kind of like trying to think, well, if you put this in front of a bunch of new players and you go, let's play a game of werewolf, I would want to, on my first outing, have them play werewolves and to kind of say, don't look at that book. And I think that's partly also why the book is obviously, when you look at the, when you look at the bookmarks for this book, it is set up into definite discrete uh, books. So, you know, the last section of the book, really, it's one of those kind of like virtual box sets where you could go just, you you just do not let your players look at that because that contains a whole load of options that will distract them from trying to think up something that is, which will give like a, a good unified kind of play experience. Right. The, the appendix is where you have the Merits, the White Howlers, and the uh, Croatan, which are all things you probably don't want first-time players playing. No. And and I would say even the same, like, again, with, like, the change of breeds. But, I mean, I can, I can see it's... It, so that you would say, then, this book is ultimately, though, for someone that's played Werewolf the, the Apocalypse for as long as you have, is kind of the... It contains everything you would ideally want in one book without having to, like, dance between different books already on your bookshelf. Correct. And I think, you know, it's one of those books where, like, it is a definitive edition. It's very good. But you would need someone who has werewolf experience to get mm. someone else into the setting, mm. more than likely. Because they have the very, like, the various short blurbs on the tribe, but that's, but they're probably just as long as they were in the Apocalypse Core. And uh, and you've got the setting information, which is pro again probably just as long as the, in the Apocalypse Core. There's probably a little less um, personal fiction mm -hmm. because they devoted that space towards the comic in the front, which again the comic in the front was probably devoted more towards you know the longtime fans of the setting. I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's a very good book. I can but I can see where you're coming from and saying that it's not really for new players. Yeah, I mean, I I found I found it difficult to 
really even find um, like the the like there's so many tribes. I mean, um, if you can then because I, I obviously I'm not too sure. So in the in the tribe section of the book, there's like 13 main tribes. Is that right? There's 13 main tribes. I've got my numbers wrong, but the, those are all original. You know that you would always have played in revised as well. Again, uh-huh. I, I think I, I think I always have a feeling when I see that many options is uh, this is kind of the kind of this is post new world of darkness me speaking in this this way is that it's a lot of options and i often think that maybe there's a lot of there's so much like kind of like overlap between these that really sometimes the real difference between some of them is simply because of like they've gone well they're from one part of the world ethnic you know in an ethnic kind of sense and they're from another part and that kind of leaves me feeling a bit like uh, again it's these distractions when you really want to ask a player what type of thing do you want to play rather than having to read all these different things and trying to choose between things that can actually be quite similar yeah mm-hmm. it's it's difficult <laughs> it's uh you know I, i'm trying to be as fair as as looking at it from my perspective um but like what else i mean what else was in the book than that that uh is new i mean i noticed they they updated a lot of they updated in various places the setting information to reflect um kind of many of the events that have occurred around the world so obviously there's talk of the um gulf of mexico oil spill there's a bit on uh, tsunami and nuclear power plant meltdown in Japan and various things like that, like the war in Afghanistan and obviously the war in Iraq and so forth and so forth. And, you know, those bits I found kind of, I found kind of interesting um, additions because obviously it shows they've put some good thought into how to make the setting evolve and again, kind of like, you know, offsetting when the apocalypse occurs because obviously the apocalypse occurred was meant to occur however many years previously but now you know this assumes you you've chosen that your apocalypse occurs 10 years away from now or 20 years away from now or or whatever well like i think i've said before is that um there's a very there's a thing that i like about where the apocalypse is that like they always kind of put like the apocalypse is going to happen, but you never know when. Mm-hmm. And in revised, they put a they put a hard clock on it. They made it like no new guru were ever going to be born. Like you knew the apocalypse was going to happen because they were trying to set up for the end of the game line. And I think that hurt the game as a whole. I agree. Yeah, because it it kind of killed a lot of some of the themes in the in the werewolf book which were like you know relating with your family and you know trying to you know create new guru and making sure that you know the fight will be able to continue past your lifetime putting a hard end date on the apocalypse kind of kills some of the drama of the whole thing whereas i'm thinking like in vampire and mage not as a vampire mage player but i think that just kind of ramps up the drama in a vampire game because you know that you know Gehenna is coming and you're trying to put your affairs in order before it does mm. whereas in um, vamp- go ahead I was going to say like it so so yeah it, I mean in vampire it's, it's it's different because obviously um it's the whole you know time thin blood kind of thing and the difference I would say in in vampire is that if you know that 
Gehenna is coming very soon. It's that whole kind of millennial fever kind of element to it. And, you know, either you're, you're an old elder who's obviously doing his last kind of big maneuver to get everything together so they can survive and or do whatever. And if you're uh, a neonate or, or, or a younger vampire in general, it's kind of like it's almost a feverish kind of feeling of, of trying to find some way out. And the thing I got from reading Wealth from 20th Anniversary is that in different places it did talk about, you know, relating to your kinfolk and the importance of kinfolk and, you know, the importance of, uh, kin, uh, of uh, kinfolk uh, wolves, and because they're becoming rarer and rarer, and but all those things to worry about, which I would say are mundane worries, because they're basically the, the, the things that you worry about of, of continuing what is, is about you, seems rather pointless when you know the apocalypse is coming, and it literally states in a number of places all the all the guru who will fight in the final battle have been born. And it's kind of like, then why am I worrying about these guys? Like we need to get to the fight now. And so the focus seems a little jumbled. Uh huh. Um, and in mage, I think that's different again in mage ascension. It's different again, because you're in a race to, as the, as the apocalypse gets closer, one of the options in ascension that you could play out is that more and more and more people are awakening so you've now got this um, this kind of snowballing effect where more people are, are waking to manipulate reality. And so you can still care about these people, but whereas before you'd be slowly kind of gathering and harvesting and bringing together people that could be potential allies, now they're just waking up everywhere and the, the trick is getting them onto your side sooner rather than later. Um, so yeah, I think wealth. Yeah, I don't know. How would you how would you then address that then, Matt? How would you kind of balance the whole worrying about your your tribe and your territory and kind of more local mundane issues, and then dealing with the bigger you know meta plot issue? Well, like I said, I there's if I were I make sure that you know the apocalypse is still kind of a ways off or even like there's a big thing that what they did in the what they did with the book is there's this prophecy of the phoenix mm -hmm. which is saying you know like the guy like phoenix came down to him and basically gave him a timeline of when things were going to happen and some things were interpreted some things were very obvious like the eye of the worm opens a new red star like appears in the sky over can't remember where but it's like you know there's a new star in the sky that's like bright blood red hmm that's probably the eye of the worm and like just like leave those kind of prophecies in there but like have the apocalypse happen when it needs to happen don't you know give them like advance warning like you know well you're not having kids anymore so the apocalypse is probably happening you know this isn't happening anymore so that's probably you know a thing you need, don't need to worry about anymore like i think what they wanted to do is make it so that you know like, make them into non-issues so that the players don't have to worry about them as they trudge off to war. But doing that kind of, you know, lessens some of the impact of, you know, you have to go off to war and you have to leave your family behind. You probably won't see them again. But mm. hopefully, you know, your line will continue. I... And, 
I was going to say there's something that I think um, when I've when I've sat down and thought about this, and uh, Mike, we were talking about um, this mm-hmm. in relation to uh, how the Gold Machine Chronicles had stuff in there because the Gold Machine Chronicles has different tiers of gameplay that it gives out, and that, so in New World of Darkness, it presented you know you could play at a very local level, and then at a, a larger level, so city level, and then you know. At a uh, country and then international, then global, and then obviously cosmic scale. And the the one thing which I think is important about that, because again, you're you're operating, you're playing characters that are against a cosmic entity, and the weaver and the and the worm are cosmic entities. Okay, so it made me think that you could take some inspiration from there because one of the main things in God Machine Chronicles is that the God Machine creates these infrastructures to move itself towards its end game. But it means that people can, can combat it either at a local or glo- at, at any of those tiers because it depends upon their awareness. And I think that could be something that could be more interesting way to approach uh, the ideas in wealth, the apocalypse. So, say your 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 players are this pack, and they're say set in the city of you know somewhere in like um, say in Pittsburgh, and they're they're re- then they're not big players in their tribes, not big players in their city, but they get involved with in some plots, and the whole thing is that they interact with the infrastructures of what the worm is doing, and they prevent something. So there's this feeling that they are fighting against it, but they're not fighting against it on the, you know, they're literally tearing its throat out, but they're still hindering it. And it's, I think that then maybe plays into the idea that you can work the whole, how things in the real world reflect into the spirit world and how there are different sized cogs. And sometimes the most important cogs are not the big ones. Right. And there's a lot in the various other werewolf books that do go over that. Like, there are books, there's books about, like, you know, how to run things on a city scale, or, like, how the tribes handle things, and it's spread out around a whole bunch of books, but that information is there, and there's information in the Storyteller's Guide that you can't, it can't always be, you know, giant epic stories, every so often you have to bring them back to their, you know, home sept and have them deal with the kinfolk, because you, you kind, at some point in time, you have to humble them somewhat, because, if they're not, if they're all about glory and honor and doing all that stuff, then they're ignoring wisdom, and that's going to take a hit. And even the st- most strongest, most powerful Arun needs to understand that from time to time they have to step back and look at things. And that's a strength of the Guru Nation, I think, in Werewolf the Apocalypse, is that the storyteller has this massive social construct that they can use against their both against and for their players and for the story. Hmm. You see, that sounds great, and if you say that kind of information was like spread over however many Werewolf the Apocalypse books, I don't know. I just have this gut feeling that that would have been some that information would have been better kind of collected together and put in the 20th anniversary book and pull out the changing breeds because I just to me. If if you want this, I don't know, just it's my opinion what a definitive werewolf book should have been. Is a definitive werewolf book should have been delivering the 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 the, the this definite 
werewolf werewolf the apocalypse experience and i and i think that could have given you that experience over a broad range of of scope and these tiers and scale well, my and then the change of breeds could have waited for another book because i don't see the importance of the change of breeds as much maybe well, the change of breeds are is. waiting for another book. They're getting yeah. their own Kickstarter thing here pretty soon. And I honestly was kind of surprised that they had that information in there. But the information they did have was rather small. Like, that's about as information, much as information as the Changing Breeds got in the first Werewolf Storyteller's okay. Guide. Like, that small amount. Um, my question is, did Vampire 20th Anniversary have a Storyteller's section? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing, like... I think the difference between werewolf, werewolf and vampire is that there's a lot about werewolf that is intrinsic to werewolf, whereas vampire is more about like you're you're playing vampires and there's a lot of those themes that everybody knows about already. Whereas yeah. werewolf the apocalypse has a lot has it's got a lot of information to it that's very rich and they had to spend time going over the umbra. And they had to spend time going over a whole bunch of other things. And I think they did a very good job with the amount of information that they had to get across. Because hmm. there's a I lot think... of very unique, quote-unquote, werewolf the apocalypse information that they had to get across to the end users in a definitive edition. Well, I think that's why you, know, you, can, get a, you can almost get away with the, the lack of... Yeah, I guess the the kind of the storyteller section that I would have liked to have seen in Werewolf 20, you can get away with kind of sort of not having vampire because of how how if you if you are if you ask people about playing a game where they're vampires, I think that's maybe easier for new players to kind of get behind than what it is to play the werewolves of Werewolf the Apocalypse because, as you say, they're quite there's a lot of unique information there. They're not just the wells you see in any other genre TV or film or anything. There's a lot of extra stuff that makes, you know, the guru, the guru. So yeah, it's a, it's a balanced thing, but yeah, hopefully they, they put that all out as an extra book then. Cause that's ideally what I would like to see. What more do we want to say about the book then Mike? Well, I think a, a good question, especially for Matt, since we have him here is, Looking at the different werewolf tribes, you know, our, our real world society has evolved quite a bit since 1992. Um, what, what tribes have changed uh, in their portrayal significantly, hopefully for the better, and which ones still kind of um, are lacking in their uh, cultural portrayal? Uh, because werewolf, of course, has had some issues with uh, pretty questionable stereotypes in the past. Yeah. Um, do you mean from first to revised, or do you mean from revised to Werewolf 20? From anything up to Werewolf 20. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the one that has changed, the, the, the two that have changed the most in their portrayals have been the Get of Fenris and the Uktena. Because mm-hmm. in first edition Werewolf the Apocalypse, the Get of Fenris were very, like, almost painfully German and very, very racist. They were sort of Nazis without actually being called Nazis. Mm. And, like, they were very big on blood purity. They were very big on strength above all else. 
and they hated the other tribes for being weak because they weren't strong like the Gedefenris were, and it kind of spiraled out from there. Then Gedefenris Revised came out, and they downplayed a lot of that. The tribe as a whole tried to distance themselves from the Nazis because there were a lot of Gedefenris who did some very horrible things during World War II, and the Gedefenris really don't like talking about that. And they tried to... Ex- like they tried to emphasize, you know, strength as a whole, but not physical strength as much as if you're a hacker, be the best goddamn hacker you can be. That is your strength. You know, you have to have a certain amount of physical combat capability because you're a guru, but we're not going to hate you because you can't bench press a car because you can do other things that we can't. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot, and in previous editions, there was a lot of some very sexist under undertones too like and they kind of address that and revised whereas the tribe as a whole like there's a they do a lot of hazing of younger female female guru but their justification is that they're doing it as a test as a kind of thing like they they want them to push back to you know say this isn't cool you need to stop it at which points they will because they don't want people who are going to internalize that and let it get at them and then explode at a later date because you're dealing with a with a you know with you know human culture who has those issues with women you know objectifying them, treating them as second-class citizens, and then you're putting those issues onto a person who's, you know, filled with, you know, more anger than any human being could ever possibly understand. And that's their way of trying to handle it. Probably not in the best way, and they admit that they've driven away a lot of women to the Black Furies as a result, but that's how they've been trying to address it. Because even in their tribe, they've got a bunch of people who treat women very poorly. I think like they 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 moved from you know we're you know the get of Fenris and this is the way we are and it's great to having you know people saying yeah we made some mistakes in the past and for a tribe like the get of Fenris that's huge mm. like that owning up to the fact that they made mistakes shows a lot of growth for the tribe and then you have the Oktena who at the start were kind of like you know the Native American mystic tribe and that's really as far as they went to in revised just turning into a mystic tribe and also including you know other various minorities that they try to include and even a few you know european people of european descent but they try to keep to the more oppressed the more oppressed people in whatever nation they go to but that's because they what they try to do is they try to learn about the local legends and cultures and whatever evils might be bound therein and making sure that they stay bound. Like, that's how the Uctena go. Yeah, no, that's pretty neat, actually, for the Uctena, because uh, obviously the more cultured societies, uh, the upper class doesn't pay much attention to uh, such legends and myths. So that is a pretty neat reason for them to kind of stick down to the uh, lower class, lower caste. Well, the more oppressed class, the lower caste people are the bone nars, who are their right. own thing, and they've been portrayed well or poorly, depending on the author. Their revised book is pretty damn good. And uh, Matt, which which tribes haven't changed enough, in your opinion? <laughs> the Wendigo and the Fianna. Ah, so the other and, Native American tribe. Yeah. The Wendigo... 
like they're the hat that they wear is the angry Native American, which is a pretty offensive hat to even exist, nonetheless have to be forced to wear. Mm-hmm. And like their like their whole shtick is that they know the way that the way that things are supposed to go, and the white men can never understand them, so they must do it themselves. And then when the white man comes in and ruins things because they don't know any better, it's the white man's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the Fianna, um, your issue with them not changing enough is? They put forth a lot of very offensive Irish and to a lesser extent Scottish, but not that much Scottish because the Scots were another tribe. But they put forward a lot of really bad stereotypes. Like, as my friend put it, they're so Irish it hurts mm-hmm. with an O. Um, yeah, like they're they're all, they're all about the they associate with the fairies a lot. There is a very real um, hatred of physical deformity because they see physical deformity as a sign of spiritual deformity. But they're the tribe who puts out the most medis as a whole mm-hmm. who are the deformed offspring of two guru and so there's this very there's this like subculture in the fiana who you know kill medis at birth because they don't want the other tribes to know how many of them they produce mm-hmm. and it's kind of you know offensive it's like you know yeah, so you guys like are all about free love and getting drunk and having sex, but you don't want to admit the bad parts of any of that, and you're just being really Irish the rest of the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this brings the one thing which I guess is um, yeah, it's 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 difficult because when you go through this, like I like some of the tribes in there simply because of their they do have a good kind of conceptual theme, but it's not tied to any form of ethnic origin whatsoever. And then there are ones which are so, as you say, so Irish or, or so angry Native American. It just kind of makes you just go, uh, what? Cause the, there may be a basic gem of a theme there, but why did it have to be tied to a kind of a character, a caricature of a, of a group of people? Oh, like I said, I think part of that is that um, it's baggage from the mythology. Because mm-hmm. originally, like way back when, there were, and I'm not sure how much of this was established in first edition or not, but there were three Native American tribes before the Europeans came. Mm-hmm. And so you had the Croatan, who were the leader, who were kind of like the leaders of the three tribes. And then the Uktena, who were the mystics, and the Wendigo, who were the warriors. And within the microcosm of North America, that worked pretty well. But then the European tribes came, and now you've got the Wendigo, who are the warriors, and the Getafenris, who are the warriors, and the rest of the Garu, who are also warriors, and the Red Talons, who are the warriors, except they're all lupus. Hmm. And they lost a lot of what made them special. And what was left was Native American, but the Uktena were also Native American. 
just the Uctena had more room to grow than the Wendigo did. And I think this is the thing which um, I think is where, obviously, I, I we'll talk about this a bit later, is where it's going to be, it's interesting to draw a parallel between these tribes and the ones in Wealth of Forsaken, because I think there's a definite, you know, there's obviously a sign of how there was a cha- obvious changing in thought process of how to approach writing about tribes and and uh, and where werewolves come from and how they're tied to particular areas. Um, okay, cool. I'm trying to think of some more questions and things to uh, talk about in there. I mean, the one thing I do really like in the book is there's a there. I mean, if you're going to pick it up and you want to run werewolf, um, there is a absolute ton of obviously there is pretty much every single power and and uh ritual and right under the uh, sun in there and there is a pretty complete antagonist section so you know be it various types of uh spirits and um that you want to throw against your uh, players so in that sense there's there's, there's a lot I, it could be very i you know it'd be very difficult to to uh, exhaust this book in in right. just one chronicle, so you know that's a great thing about it. Right, and like I was saying, I'm not trying to you know rag on the werewolf writers by saying that they didn't change the Fiana and the Wendigo and they didn't change any other things because, to be honest, they really couldn't. Mm-hmm. Like if they got rid of them, they would have pissed off people. If they didn't yeah, change yeah. them, they would have pissed off people. If they had changed them, would have pissed off people. There's a lot of things from that have been in Werewolf since first edition that are there. They've become a part of what Werewolf makes Werewolf the Apocalypse, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And the complaints about them have been there since, you know, forever. It's just part and parcel about what makes Werewolf the Apocalypse what it is. And, you know, it's still an excellent game for all its faults. And the fact is that the faults are there and you as a player, like, there are people in the setting that do try to address those faults. Like there are people who go up against the Fianna and say, Hey, you guys need to stop, you know, doing some of the crap you're doing. And people try to get the, and the Octena try to get the Wendigo to stop being so crazy. Like there are like the writers realize that there are problems in the setting and they try to address it within the setting, which I think is good for them. I mean, it's an excellent setting, and I really do like it. And I would recommend it if you've ever, you know, even if you've played World of the Apocalypse before. It's a really good setting. Yeah, totally. Now, what about the rules? Like, what have been the uh, major changes um, or, or powers dropped, powers not really added, but changed, uh, and, and that sort of thing in, in W20? Well, I'm not sure about what powers have been changed because, as Chris said, there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. There's, I'm not even sure how many pages worth of gifts. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. At least 48 pages worth of gifts to go through. Um, but there have been some changes in gifts, um, like just some balancing among them, making the really strong ones a little bit weaker or more expensive. Um, they did the Wraith thing of getting rid of Dodge as the stat entirely. Mm-hmm. Dodge, is, Dodge has been rolled into athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, like, there's 
almost all, if not all, of the gifts, um, most of the rights that are important, most of the um, merits that people took that weren't broken in half. Because there were some of those, too. (laughs) (laughs) There are some of the backgrounds, not all of them, but there's enough of them that you can make pretty much whatever thematic character you want to. Like there were there were a bunch that were introduced in revised edition as optional backgrounds and but not all of them are in here. Right. And are those mostly like the uh more guru society specific kind of backgrounds? Um the ones that come to mind were um Worm Touched, Wild Touched, and Weaver Touched, which oh. aren't in here. Okay. Um and those were like those are the ones that were really, really mathy. Like you could use them hmm. to game the system. I know Wild Touch like made it so that if you got successes, like if you got an exceptional success, it just gave you more successes. <laughs> and Weaver Touch turned like you could never like you almost always succeeded, but you you never did exceptionally well. You just succeeded. And Worm Touched was like, you could spend willpower points to just get an absurd number of dice added to the roll. Like, it's supposed to be like, you know, but you're being corrupted by the worm, but you're also getting here have seven dice. Like, that kind of stuff. Like, they, they got rid of a lot of the really, like, mathy metagaming stuff and tried to make things better. Is there anything you you're you know going through say uh, other sections you're happy that they they included that would have been say in, in various different books at one point that they've brought together so you know be it you know certain sets of gifts or I would say even certain sets of uh, you know antagonists in here so they are happy to see brought into this that's been brought into this core book. Um, one of my they brought one of my favorite antagonists into the core book, which is a uh, DNA. Okay. Which is a mortal company. Like they're entirely mortal. They have absolutely no idea that the Weaver exists or that the Worm exists, but they do her work because they think that lycanthropy is a disease, a genetic disorder. And mm-hmm. they're trying to cure it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that was that's one section I actually. I mean, this says a lot maybe about me as a person, and possibly speaks to my mage the ascension days. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed reading through all the uh, the Pentex section and corporations because, you know, that resonates a lot with having played, having run a lot of mage and having played uh, a technocracy game. So, you know, I can easily get behind these <laughs> elusive evil corporations and all their uh, subsidiary co- companies such as Otollies uh, and uh, and Black Dog Game Factory and so forth. And, um, yeah, it was good reading through that section because, again, they've included, um, you know, in places uh, changes where to keep up with the way, you know, our world has evolved such as the virtual world of black dogs uh, uh 
so Black Dog Gaming Company obviously has now got a thriving online game about to come and uh, into being, and it's a reflection of the world uh, based upon the work from some some uh, creature from Scandinavia. So obviously um, <laughs> having some fun at CCP there. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I really enjoyed that section, and and uh, you know, there's again, there's a lot of antagonist like agencies and uh, you know, paramilitary mercenaries and so forth that you can drop into your game. So there's there's a lot you can use um, straight away. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that there's a bunch of gifts from other books that have now been brought into the core mm-hmm. for easier reference. Like it used to be when you were making a character, it's like hmm. I can make a glass walker and pull gifts from seven different books. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm never a fan of when you get into that scenario unless you've got some nice way of like now we have PDFs that you can you can copy the relevant rules into a into a handout for your player so he's got some sort of cut down version. So they can actually run the game quicker. Yeah, it's always good when it's all in one place and obviously searchable. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, do we have anything more we want to say on the book, Mike? Or can we do a bit of a wrap-up of this? Or Yeah, I guess we can do a wrap-up. Um, I mean, uh, definitely Werewolf is a, is a great game. Uh, I know we didn't go too in-depth about the... Uh, the setting in the different tribes here, but you can check out Dark Days Radio episode number 22, uh, where Mark and I discuss uh, just that in a rapid-fire segment. Yeah, I mean, I would say, going through I'm, like I say, with the antagonist section and various other bits, is it's still a right book for me of to plunder for ideas for a slightly different werewolf game and uh, and for spirits to dump it into any other world of darkness games so you know it's all there and it's quite clearly designed for the, the fans of the classic books i'm just not one of them <laughs> oh well <laughs> all right very good uh any last comments matt um not no not right now i mean we've mostly gone over everything i like about apocalypse all right awesome cool all right with that let's uh move on over to the secret frequency All right, Chris, what do you got for us? So this came from a wonderful news article I spotted recently. Um, due to the fact that Colin Suleiman uh, put it up on his Facebook, and I was like, oh, what's that? And obviously, so uh, we're quite grateful for him for sharing that. So this is about the extensive ancient underground network discovered that stretches all the way from Scotland to Turkey. So archaeologists have uncovered thousands of Stone Age underground tunnels stretching across Europe from Scotland to Turkey, and obviously researchers are unsure of the original purpose. German archaeologist Dr. Heinrich Kusch, in his book Secrets of the Underground Door to an Ancient World, revealed that tunnels were dug under literally hundreds of Neolithic settlements all over Europe. And the fact they've survived 12,000 years 
indicates that the original network must have been far larger. Because of course, over time we've dug up everywhere in Europe, because we were one of the de most densely populated places in the world. So apparently in Bavaria, there's around about 700 meters of these underground tunnel networks. Uh, there's some in Styria in Austria, there's about 350 meters, and even more sites across Europe. Uh, these tunnels are quite small, measuring only 70 centimeters in width, and so they're just big enough for a person to crawl through. Uh, obviously, some places are lead into small rooms, storage chambers, and have seating areas that have been carved. The age of these uh, of these uh, locations uh, puts them into three technological kind of prehistory periods: so Stone Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age. But um, these ones all occur in that transition uh, out of the Stone Age between 6000 BC to uh, 2500 BC and while there's a lot of belief that Stone Age humans were quite primitive there's been numerous examples recently discoveries which kind of you know puts an end to that belief there was the uh, I don't know whether you guys have seen this one the Gobekli Tepe uh, temple in Turkey, which has some very early signs of uh, humans uh, doing um, rituals to gods of the harvest, and that's a site that's 12,000 years old. Obviously, we have the pyramids of Egypt and the temple and the pyramids of uh, at Giza. They have uh, networks of tunnels underneath them, and we also have Stonehenge. Um, so the discovery of this vast network of tunnels indicates that Stonehenge humans were you know, doing more than just hunting and gathering. And so the question is, what the purpose of these tunnels were? Are they for a way of travelling safely in bad weather? Uh, are they a way of sheltering from the harsh conditions? Or from war and conflict? Or are they a way of traversing very large you know, distances from what would literally be kind of like uh, from one town to another, or one city to another? Even though the cities would not have existed, I'm kind of given an idea of like the sort of distances that you could have uh, could have travelled with these. So, what could these tunnels be in the world of darkness? Uh, I have some ideas, and let's put Matt on the spot. What do you think? First off, how could you tie this into some world of darkness game? Well, if you want to pull it tie this into world the apocalypse those could easily be you know tunnels down to places where banes were you know kept kept, kept uh, captive mm -hmm. and there were supposedly like gigantic tunnels underneath uh, most of Europe and uh, United Kingdom that were tunnels down to black spiral dancer nests yeah I mean that's exactly you know I was kind of thinking along the lines of um, I would also say there's a. You could also have a look at the fact that these tunnels could be a way of entering uh, the underworld. So um, these are the border between the upper depths of the underworld in, say, Geist and our world, or they could also be into the network, the warren of tunnels uh, that are created by. Uh, am I right? Created by spectres in Wraith and in Orpheus. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. Um, Mike, any ideas? 
Yeah, and this is definitely a great uh, super frequency for a werewolf episode. So, uh, one thing it could be is uh, maybe all these little communities actually had small cairns underneath them. But uh, mm -hmm. since then, the, the nodes have simply dried up, and it's kind of a, uh, a sad fact of Guru society that all of these uh, villages were once thriving with kinfolk, and now there's nothing there. Another option, uh, it, uh, reading the, uh, the Werewolf the Apocalypse novel, uh, The Last Battle, a couple of Guru go and meet up with the uh, oldest, if not shapeshifter, the oldest uh, Gural, which is uh, one of the werebears. And it's kind of a dull scene where they just kind of meet her by a tree. Uh, I think this sort of a, a cave system like this, uh, cut into Neolithic rock, would be a really cool uh, scene to have in your game. Right, because the Garal can, like, hibernate for millennia. Precisely. Yep, so that's another option as well. It could just be that these were once uh, Garal layers, but uh, they've... Of course, uh, during the, uh, the War of Rage... Uh, where the werewolves uh, went and uh, decided to attack all the changing breeds and assert their dominance, um, the, many of the werebears were actually wiped out. And this is uh, what remains of their, uh, their once thriving culture. Um, I was also thinking you could obviously tie this into um, anything to do with you know, kind of the reworking of uh, ley lines, and so dragon lines, and so that kind of ties into the fact that these could be the remnants of, uh, you know, some form of remnant of uh, pre-fall of Atlantis, um, so in Mage the Awakening, um, and equally tie that into uh, Mage Ascension. Uh, considering these are all across uh, Europe, um, it could be tied to the Verbena, or even if there, are, if the depending on how the network is laid out. Could this be some sort of uh, maybe a European kind of link to the Ali Batini with their web mm -hmm, in right. Mage the in Mage Ascension and in Sorcerer's Crusade and so forth? Um, obviously, you also can look at these from the point of view of how they relate to mummies because mummies are very ancient beings, and so maybe these are the work of their uh, their cultists who are who had previously used these as places to keep their mummies, uh, who they venerate and worship. And of course, their, the use of these tunnels has fallen out of use. But of course, there may be some areas of tunnels still to be found and some mummy to be awoken. Uh, there's also some parallel you can make between these tunnels and, say, the tunnels under uh, the catacombs of Rome. And so, uh, obviously, this is a prehistoric um, vampire society. So you could use it. Uh, maybe these are tunnels that um, were where... I'm trying to think of which ones would be in the European one. Maybe Gangrel or Mechet vampires uh, you know, lived underground. Um, during the Stone Age. And of course you could easily apply that to Vampire the Masquerade. Um, because of course it's, it'd be a very strange period of time to play any form of the World of Darkness games because you know, so many of the, his, the big historical events that we know of and that we, we like to tie into our games of World of Darkness haven't occurred. And so we're in, a, in an age where history is, is a literal blank slate and so you could play it in so many different ways and you could have events that do become you could, you could work in events of your own imagination that of course get lost to the sands of time 
All right, is that it for the secret frequency? Any other ideas? Nothing. The boggart holes. <laughs> the fairies. <laughs> uh, yeah, changeling. Yeah, uh, yeah, changeling. <laughs> that game. Um, we we've got on something we'll just oh finally uh, they're, they're, uh, they're a form of ancient engine of the god machine from ancient engine but they're just holes in the ground that doesn't make any sense yeah but they're the holes that channel things they are the literal uh, they could be the literal uh, veins and mm. and uh, and lungs of the god machine for some weird infrastructure of geomancy intriguing and you can probably just drop a V8 into one of the bigger holes. If you want to make it a literal engine. Yeah. Cool. Alright, I think that's it for the secret frequency. So, let's move on over to the new world of darkness. World of Darkness 2.0. Hey, uh, Chris, want to talk about werewolves some more? Yeah, let's talk about werewolves. Let's talk about uh, Werewolf of the Forsaken. So... One of the things that's led me to this choice is the fact that there was a whole load of tribes in Wealth the Apocalypse. And, you know, obviously I saw there was some definite thematic elements of these tribes alike, and there are some tribes that have, as we said, they're, they're more uh, ethnic-based, and there's elements of, you know, cultural appropriation in their write-ups. Now... This made me think about how these tribes could be used for inspiration in New Order Darkness, for how you could give a more local or, or give kind of more unique um, flavor to variations of the tribes of the moon from Wealth of the Forsaken. So, you know, say you could use the Fianna as a bit of inspiration for how maybe the uh, a tribe of, say, well, let me choose Hunters of Darkness, how how a pack of hunters of darkness in wealth of the Forsa uh, forsaken would be in in Ireland. You know, they would have a, a slightly different feel to how they are in in say New York or say in China or wherever. Which eventually led me onto the thoughts of, well, what do we know about the tribes in wealth of the forsaken, and how their presentation in the core book is really a bit limited compared to what has been uh, what they've further expand upon in the book Tribes of the Moon. So where shall we begin? Um, a brief overview of the tribes in Wealth of Forsaken? Yeah, but I think before we even get to that, I mean, just looking at how... Let's let's compare quite briefly the uh, yes, difference okay, between yeah. a tribe in Werewolf the Apocalypse and a tribe in Werewolf the Forsaken. So in Werewolf the Apocalypse, a tribe is something that you're essentially born into... Um, although there is the ability to leave a tribe, uh, for example, there's a, uh, there's a great short story in the When Will You Rage anthology, uh, I think, I think Sam Trupp wrote, wrote this one, uh, it's about a, get a Fenris female who went and joined the, the Black Furies, and, uh, Matt, you alluded to that, uh, earlier, that situation earlier, mm -hmm. uh, during the previous segment, um, so it, there is some ability to change your tribe, um, especially with uh, different rites uh, and rituals and that kind of stuff. Well, you can, you can, you can like actually leave a tribe once you've been initiated, mm -hmm. but there's also the fact that you can, you know, just not be initiated and get adopted by another tribe. <laughs> right. Right. Now in uh, world of forsaken tribes are, um, 
definitely political entities. Uh, and it's, well, no, I wouldn't say simple. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say political entities even. I would say they're more schools of thought. Sure, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and they, I think, I think the two core elements to each of them is how they interact with humans and how they interact with other werewolves. Um, mm -hmm. For example, you have the, uh, the Iron Masters, and they are generally more accepting of humanity and, and tend to be more shepherds of humanity and, and try to work with them in the systems available. And they're also more open to change. Uh, so the Iron Masters are, uh, that's their, their thing is change, but not needless change. So they're kind of, yeah, there's this whole neophile thing about them. Yeah. Precisely. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the, the Blood Talons, who are really very much a warrior tribe. And they tend to be more heavy-handed, uh, dealing with both other werewolves and uh, mortals in general. So uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's two of the tribes right there, uh, kind of in a nutshell. Uh, Chris, where are the uh, other three? Okay, so the I think if we if I go through because obviously I've read through tribes of the moon most of it now, so I have mm -hmm. a, a good overview. So so the blood the blood talons, as you said, this warrior tribe, and they they have a uh, they have a I'm trying to think of what the term is. It's a uh, not ban. It's a uh, oh I can't think of the word now. You have to cut this while I think of what's, oh, what's, the, what's um, their the, oath. The oath. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying. Sorry, I was thinking in changeling terms just then. Christ's sake. Um, yes. Yeah, so the oath is, uh, you know, offer no surrender that you would not accept, and that on first reading seems very rigid. And you know, as you say, they're they're warriors, but they're actually they're they're not stupid warriors. You know, they will. When it says offer no surrender that you would not accept, that is such a malleable term. And so also that their idea of what to be a warrior is, is also, you know, very fluid, depending upon what region of the world you're from or who you've been brought up by or, or which werewolves have brought you in, into that tribe. Um, you then have the Bone Shadows, who generally are the ones that uh, deal with dead things and, you know, look after... A lot of the old knowledge and converse with some spirits, and so their their whole thing is pay each spirit in kind, which is all about respecting spirits. But also that again is kind of malleable because it's about well, you only have to respect a spirit that's respecting you, and vice versa. So if a spirit does not respect you, then you owe it nothing. Um, and of course, as I say, they, they also have a, a lot of truck, say ghosts and, and insight into things that have been and dealing with spirits. Uh, Hunters in Darkness are your kind of classic kind of silent killers of, of the night. And their oath is let no sacred place in your territory be violated. And that again brings up this wonderful question of well what counts as sacred and again you have this continuing conversation of for a hunter in darkness what they consider sacred what counts as a violation and where's the middle ground in that because of course you just can't fly off the handle and kill another werewolf if they walk in on on your sacred place because that's you know breaking of harmony so it's quite difficult in that sense um they're also the hunters of darkness are all about the that life is a continual hunt so there is the the hunt with capital H, and 
and that there are phases to this. Uh, Iron Masters, as you've said, honour your territory in all things, which means you don't have to honour things in your territory if it doesn't deserve honour. So again, the question is, when does something deserve honour and when does it not? And yeah, they're the shepherds of humanity, so they try and, again, police the boundaries more so between humans and the spirit world, whereas, say, the rest of the tribes are about you know, bringing a balance between the world in general and the spirit world. And the Iron Masters and the uh, Hunters in Darkness get into fights a lot because the Hunters in Darkness want to, you know, protect their sacred places, whereas the Iron Masters want to gentrify things and make things better so as to honor them. Well, yeah, it's, it's so, it's, it, all these oaths are so open to interpretation. And I think that's one of the, the nice things about it. And you kind of get into that when you read Tribes of the Moon. Um, and Storm Lords, of course, is allow no one to witness or tend to your weakness, which again, seems very, uh, seems very rigid. And so these are kind of the, the classic leaders. Um, and when you read up more upon them they're they're also about not only allowing no one to witness your weakness but it's about overcoming it empathizing with someone else's weakness and taking revenge and and so it's about honor um so yeah we have these five basic you know these five tribes and of course the first thing we can say about all the tribes as they're just straight written is they are tied to no particular area of the world no ethnic group no nothing so this means that uh, a pack of storm lords in london and a pack of storm lords in australia the other thing they may have different rites rituals uh, may have a different idea of what their oath translates into for them but they all are tied to the same totem, uh, their totem in that case being the Winter Wolf. Um, and it really gives a different feel for, I think that gives a different feel for what these tribes are, say, compared to what tribes are in Wealth, the Apocalypse. Um, so, and of course, Tribes of Moon expands upon this and look, gives lots of examples on how a person is initiated into a tribe how they're taught different things depending upon what their auspice is. So that's the phase of the moon that you have your first change under. Uh, it also gives interpretations of, of how to deal with other wells or deal with you know, violations of your ban. And then there's even examples in Tribes of the Moon of different lodges. So uh, lodges are kind of like even more specialized groupings of werewolves and they you know, follow a set particular kind of um, ideals and and and, uh, and practices and again there's examples of lodges which practice things that may be considered heretical to other members of their tribe or other tribes let's where to begin really with tribes because because i think the point is that the the way the tribes are presented in the core book as they stand is very uh, and i think this is, the, this is the problem with any core book is that the tribes of the standard seem very uh, may may look very rigid or very limited? Um, so, like for example, offer no surrender that you would not accept could lead you, on first glance, to be playing a werewolf that never backs down from a fight. But that's that's not really that's too much of a of a literal interpretation, and that's what I find kind of interesting about the the way the tribes are presented. 
Yeah, uh, I definitely think, uh, again, comparing it to Werewolf the Apocalypse, one of the uh, major changes is that, you know, in Werewolf the Apocalypse, the tribes are very much based on real-world cultures. You have the uh, Geta Fenris, who have Scandinavian and uh, Germanic influences. You have the uh, Black Furies, who um, were, were out of Greece. But when you look at the tribes um, in, in Forsaken, they don't really have that, which might seem like there's not something to instantly uh, kind of kind of grab for a concept. But Tribes of the Moon does a very good job of introducing uh, how these different tribes exist in different regions of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it gives numerous like in, uh, in-game artifacts, so stories and legends to tell of them. And even interpretations of how the tribes even got their totem in the first place. So mm-hmm. you can really play up the differences between, say, say you're playing a, a, a blood talent and you're you're part of a, a multi-tribe pack from from say Boston, but then you go all the way to say for some reason you've gone all the way to California and you start talking to the blood talents there, and just the thought processes are completely different. Right. Um, so Matt, what's your, your impression of the tribes then and how they compare to wealth, the apocalypse? Well, to a certain extent, um, like I look at some of the tribes and I can't help but think, you know, oh, the blood talons, that's, you know, the get of Fenris and red talons just smashed together into a single tribe. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of thematic elements that it looks like they're borrowing whole, wholesale from Werewolf the apocalypse just without and without any of the real cultural tribes like the uh i can see a lot of silver fangs and uh shadow lords and the storm talons mm-hmm. yeah i mean absolutely basically what you tend to see between the classic world of darkness and the new is that the splats in the classic tend to be more stereotypes um you know there's really kind of a monolithic culture to a lot of these a lot of these tribes and then you look at the New World of Darkness, and you get more of an archetype with uh, mm-hmm. this this splat type. And that's where, like, say, in New World of Darkness, the whole point of why you've got, like, you know, bloodlines and tribes, uh, not tribes, and lodges, can reintroduce a more local... If you wanted to create something that had a, a very specific feel, you can reintroduce that into these archetypes and narrow the focus down. Like, these are all from from say the Carpathian mountains because these are all werewolves from the, the lodge of of whatever lodge would be in the Carpathian mountains Just the, lodge, <laughs> the shadow lord's lodge or whatever yeah yeah exactly yeah Vigo the Carpathian right yeah exactly so and I, I think that's I think that's a good thing and I think that's obvious it's quite I think it's quite clear maybe that that's that is a purposeful distancing from werewolf the apocalypse is to remove that ethnicity of tribes because why can't you be a a, a mystic of in that style but be in any you know be from any other part of the world you would like to be and i think then that plays into the idea that you you have um you have these tribes which have come down through the ages and have these stories that they've brought with them and these legends and these rituals and and ceremonies 
that have propagated and, and spread out over the world. And so you know, you have different packs and different and different in different areas that all have little bits of the puzzle of their tribe, of their origins and different stories of how they've evolved. And I think that adds some richness to the setting because you can go, well, we're all blood talents, but we're not like you blood talents because we have this, we have our own unique history. Um, the other thing I think is, is quite different is obviously that, um, and I think Matt, we were talking about this uh, before the show uh, a while back, is there's a different balance between in Wealth, the Apocalypse and Wealth, the Forsaken with where gifts come from. So in Wealth, the Forsaken, obviously auspice is important because that gives you some abilities and gives you certain uh, certain uh, gifts. And then, of course, depending on which tribe you're a member of, that gives you access to another set of gifts. And then if you're a member of a lodge, that gives you access to more abilities and maybe access to other gifts. So because you have the diversity of, be, of characters being uh, created that can be from different auspices, it's quite easy to play games where the pack is all from one tribe or are maybe from one or two tribes to give this kind of you know cohesiveness to your player groups. They're not arguing about things or being pulled away to deal with tribe things. Um, so how would that compare to, say, in Wealth the Apocalypse of how you know, tribe plays into how packs are created for players? Well, I think in Wealth the Apocalypse, there's a lot more <clears throat> emphasis on the Garoon Nation as a whole, and there are a lot more multi-tribal septs. Mm -hmm. Like, you... It's very, very rare that you have a big sept that is only one tribe. Like, you might see that, especially amongst, like, a high-rise cairn in would be probably be mostly glasswalkers, if not entirely glasswalkers. Something in the deep wilds might be all red talons, because the red talons don't want anybody else there. Mm -hmm. But there's... But once you start getting into the really big cairns, you start getting the other tribes coming in and setting up shop because they, one, want to be there to share in the success, and two, want to be there in case something bad happens so that they don't lose, you know, the rank five cairn, because that's mm -hmm. really important. But a sept is, is a lot larger than a pack itself. A sept is, covers the entire city, right. doesn't it? Yeah, so right. the thing I'm saying is that in, in Wealthy Forsaken, though, you can have multiple tribes in in a city, but I think it's it's more that it's more feasible um, to play for players to play characters all as a pack from one tribe, even well, though well, other tribes that's... still exist. Because because you you can have that amount of diverse there's inherent amount of diversity in just choosing your auspice in what gifts you get. So so you don't feel like you have to have the entire pack has to be from every tribe and every auspice for you to, you know, cover all the bases. Right, and like I said, I, there's also that in um, in Apocalypse too, because um, there's like I said, the thing that I was trying to say is that there you it allows for multi-tribal packs a lot better than I think Forsaken does. Because if you've got a multi-tribal sept, then a new pack has a higher chance of being multi-tribal. Mm -hmm. 
and the gift lists are a lot have a lot more going for them i think because like the ragabosh gift lists like there's five or six rank one ragabosh gifts whereas you look at a you look at the what the araka in forsaken mm-hmm. like he has access to three gift lists but there's only one rank one gift in each of those lists True, but then the, there's also a slight difference is in how you even learn gifts. So you don't have to learn gifts in a in a linear progression in Forsaken. So how you learn those is is different. How you have to invest into them is different. Um, you didn't have to learn them in a linear manner in uh, Apocalypse either. Uh, okay, good. Um, See, so, yeah, I think I think the main thing I've taken I've taken though from from Tribes of Me is is really again I think the case where the way what you're presented in the core book of Forsaken is a very really gives just a a, a very brief overview of what you the diversity that you, that is actually allowed by that, and I think you can often and this is the same with same with vampire is you can often treat tribes often treat tribes or treat covenants or treat you know each of those groups in New World Darkness as almost kind of like a class, like you would in D&D or something, yeah. And that's a very, really narrow way to view this. So all, you know, every Blood Talon player is going to be the, the fight, you know, the fighter of your group, I think is a very, is, is a very limited way of applying what the Blood Talons are, say, in the game. Or, you know, how every, you know, Iron Master is going to be the one that makes all the gifts in your group. He may not be, you know, the artificer of your group. So I think that's that's something that I've I've really taken home from Tribes of the Moon. Uh, Mike, have you what things have you also picked up in Tribes of the Moon then, which kind of expand upon the tribes that are written in Forsaken? Well, again, I think the. Uh... It gives a lot, it gives you a lot of thoughts for how to look at a look at a tribe in a different region, and just really throws a lot of ideas at you. Um, what's an example? Like uh, having really punk, you know, gothic punk uh, uh, blood talons in Chicago, for example. I think that I think it says mm-hmm. that in the book. Um, yeah, but you can go elsewhere, and there's something very different. That's that's really uh, that's really one of the best things. That's really just a good way to you know grab some ideas for uh, how the tribe might be in a certain region, or, or even just uh, some ideas for different packs. Because you could easily yeah. have a pack which leaves their home city for whatever reason. Maybe there's not enough territory, ends up somewhere else, and they're really at odds with the other members of their tribe in that region. And I think that's what plays into this whole you know interpreting um, you know the oath of a tribe, mm-hmm. and so and how a pack. Different packs will interpret it differently, and then a, a tribe in one region will interpret it different to another tribe, uh, to the same tribe, but in a different place. And again, there's obviously some interesting uh, role-playing opportunities in that. So you know, you get conflicts occurring as different packs argue over the application of an oath. And I think then that that draws us into the point where. You get the same issues with the the current because obviously this is werewolf running off the new world of darkness 
humanity system pre God Machine Chronicles. And so I think I think it could be it could be very easy for a storyteller to be too heavy handed in applying the uh, breaking points of harmony based upon the straight up written you know, letter as it's written application of an oath. I think again you have to get behind and this obviously you can this may be some ideas on how you use what's in the God Machine Chronicle. So you you have to get behind how your character views the oaths and how they apply to them and then how they apply to their pack and then they, how they apply to their tribe as a whole because characters have different ideas of morality and so they may find that say uh, let's say for so say for the iron masters honor your territory and all things so one character may honor things in a slightly different way to another because they have different personal experiences so while one person may honor say their home and 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 their entire territory another character may only honor specific things within their territory in, in what falls into their territory like they may only honor like particular landmarks because they have particular important spirits tied to it and that's all based upon their own um you know personal experiences and so when they do violate these things you know it's 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 difficult it's their violations come at different points because of their experiences and I think that's the important thing there. And so I think that's a guide to how you can make use of the God Machine Chronicles um, integrity system and even start applying that to the werewolf, to Werewolf the Forsaken, that you would have to just write up a new list of, you know, you would look at the character, you would look at the werewolf and you would go, well, obviously these are all breaking points, like eating another werewolf and eating a wolf and eating a human, so forth and so forth. Mm-hmm. But when you get to like the, the oaths, to the tribe and the oath to the uh, the pack totem is you would have to look at ask an, another set of questions in order to ascertain how important those things are to that character so that you know that they may or may not get bonuses to that breaking point and of course one of the cool things there are plenty of great lodges in uh in the uh in tribes of the moon i think uh, a particular one which i liked there's there's some like as i say there's some which are all about breaking the rules of the tribes there was one that's about uh about cannibalistic werewolves and it's really getting behind how they how they reason that they're allowed to be cannibals and it's all to do with um how they how they balance regaining harmony against losing it because they believe that if something is useless, it should be consumed and destroyed Sweet. and put to, yo, better, yo, which, and put to which, better use. Which lodge is that? Oh, I, I think that's uh, Hunters in Darkness. I'll have to find it later. But, you know, again, it's, it's all these lodges that are presented in the book and all these different um, initiation rites and different rituals are all about really challenging what the interpretation of a tribe oath means and i th- i think that's really you know that's sort of just such a such is filled with great role play potential because you can then see you know you're playing a game of wealth and everyone's playing say diff- you know you've got your pack together and say you've got two or three different tribes 
present uh, present in your pack and you know most of the auspices are covered and then obviously the characters go off and get you know involved in tribal matters and it all boils down to interpretation and then you have these really difficult judgment calls that have to be made and I think that's the one thing to take home. It's just don't apply these oaths uh, that the tribes have written in the court book as they're as they're written, because that's just going to limit the uh, role play opportunities there. Nice. Do you have a particular favourite tribe in any of uh, Wealth the Apocalypse? Uh, not Wealth. Sorry, Wealth the uh, Forsaken. Well, I'm uh, kind of liking the Bone Shadows right now because uh, I'm liking this Lodge of the Reaping. They're the uh, cannibals. Oh, yeah, that's ones. the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're wicked. Oh, that's I, I find it difficult to know. I, I really like the Bone Shadows because they they have a great you know opportunity to like uh, cross over with Geist and mm. you know just the dead in general. And there's some nice little uh, fetishes and and so forth that you can use for that. Um, there's also one which is kind of interesting. There's a lodge which is in uh, for the Iron Masters. I think it's the Lodge of Wires, and it, it almost hints that they think they're venerating some tribal, you know, some totem spirit that is. Uh, it's called the digital. I think it's called the digital eye or the yes. Or, yeah, and you're just kind of like thinking, are they sure they're talking to a spirit? You don't think they could be just being manipulated by the Exarch of Panopticon, <laughs> who also uses an eye as its symbol. So again, there's there's potential for crossover there. Um, and also, some of the lodges are more global than others. So there's the um, oh, damn, I'm I'm flicking through so quickly on this. There's one lodge that is linked to how uh, they. Uh, is a response to to large scale atrocities and massacres, and it makes use of mm-hmm. it makes uh, reference to the uh, the massacre that occurred in uh, in Rwanda. But then it has a side sidebar about well, you know, unfortunately these things get repeated worldwide. So you have numerous lodges, which actually are all tied to the same totem or similar totem, and have similar kind of uh, thought processes and, and and kind of rituals and ceremonies, yet all started individually and have no link to each other. Yet they again have this commonality of their approach in in what they do. Cool, I like it. So you know, even though it may seem like you can't do, you know, it doesn't have a global scope. There is elements of having global scope in a game and of course you know the global scope is the fact that no matter where you are all iron masters venerate the same totem spirit Mm-hmm. cool well uh, i think that's pretty much it for tribes of the moon isn't it yeah i yeah i have to say it's a really well written book and filled with a lot of ideas i think Again, is this the curse of is this the actual curse that wealth the the forsaken bears is that it has less books than the rest because they're so this they're really tightly written and have everything you need mm-hmm. yep but yeah i think that's uh just about it for this episode so uh matt is there any uh do you have like a website or anything or any any uh twitter account that people can uh follow that kind of thing nope <laughs> i am i do not have a website not anymore okay well, that's good to know 
Um, if anyone wants us to uh, forward you an email, is that cool? If they uh, have any questions for you? Sure. And they can find you on Google Plus, can't they? That's true as yeah, well. Yeah, they can, they can find me on Google Plus as well. Yeah, because we're pretty active there. Um, like, we're getting bigger. Our community's getting bigger. So people should come along and join because uh, we've got a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, do we have any, um, let's think, what have we got to look forward to then, Mike? Or what things have people got to look forward to? Have we got any Hangout games coming up then? You've got your, v- you've got your um, Tremere Chronicles? Yep, the Tremere Chronicles uh, is going to be going on, and I think that's it. Uh, Andrew, Andrew is running a bunch of games, but he's busy with that uh, YouTube experiment now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just have no time for that. Um, no. I need to run my World of Darkness uh, one-shot. Um, so uh, Sam's been posting her, uh, has been doing her blog for the last two, three weeks now. So she's put up, uh, she's doing a, a um, uh, it's not really a review. It's a, it's literally a, 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 a what's, what's the term? So it's literally a, a, all the details you need episode by episode of Being Human UK. So, yeah. And there's movie reviews going up and picture posts from stuff that where we've been. And uh, and also, I am putting together slowly, slowly, the next issue of Forgotten Law. I have one submission in. No, I have two submissions in. I have a uh, something weird that I need to read. Uh, and I have a short story by Sam. And I need to put in my... Uh, I'll put in my... World of Darkness one shot once I've run it. So hopefully that'll come sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. And other than that, I'm just playing lots of Iron Kingdoms right now. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Cool. So if people want to get in contact with us, they can find us on uh, Twitter at Dark Days Radio. They can find us on Facebook. They can find us on Google+. Plus. They can also find uh, my blog, Etheric Labs. Um, that should be easy to search for. And they can find us at www.darker-days.org. Or they can email us at what address, Mike? DarkerDaysRadio at gmail.com. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. Do we have one more show left in the... Uh, in the season, I believe we need to talk about Wraith. Yeah, we do. I need to need to get around to scheduling that. Um, yeah, what what's the what's the kind of what can we what we kind of what's the feel for the what we're going to be talking about for that one? I don't know. Just talking about Wraith. See see where the night goes. <laughs> it's usually what we do with that. Um, no, I I want to get uh, Jennifer Hartshorn on the line. Uh, she's the uh, the final member of the Wraith Trinity. Uh, including Sam Chup and uh, Rich Dansky. So if we get her, that's really the the main primary developers. And there's also that guy, Mark Ryan Hagen, but we'll get him on eventually. Don't worry about that yeah. guy. <laughs> okay, I think that's pretty much it then. I think it is. So that's it for this episode of Darker Days Radio. Matt, thank you very much for uh, helping us out with a little bit of uh, werewolf discussion, your, your expertise. Uh, Mm-hmm. It's definitely appreciate. You are indeed a a werewolf guru. Oh, I'm scholar, glad you yes. Or maybe a guru. Oh, bad joke. All right, we need to get out of here. No. Everyone have a good night. Bye. <laughs>